Hello, and welcome back to the Automotive EE Systems Revolution podcast series from Siemens Digital Industries Software. This is your host and moderator, Connor Pike. In the final part of our podcast series, Doug, Dan, and I wrap up our discussion on the future of automotive EE architectures, EE systems development, and the automotive industry. In particular, we talk about the growing role of software to delivering vehicle functionality and how this change may affect vehicle development as a whole. Please enjoy. Throughout this conversation, we've been talking a lot about the evolution of the EE architecture and, you know, in particular, the rise of software. And there's this concept of the software-defined vehicle that I was hoping to get your guys' perspective on. Just as an intro, I wanted to start, I found a definition of it on an Aptiv blog, and their definition says, a software-defined vehicle is a term that describes a vehicle whose features and functions are primarily enabled through software, a result of the ongoing transformation of the automobile from a product that is mainly hardware-based to a software-centric electronic device on wheels. So from that definition, maybe just in broad strokes at first, do you agree with the definition, or are there points that you feel are, if not inaccurate, maybe incomplete? I think in general, I agree with it. It's I don't think anyone can refute that more and more content is being provided by means of software as opposed to electromechanical or hydraulic type of functionality in the vehicle. You know, and then in some cases, content is already there and it's not being used. But when an OEM decides to use it, they can turn it on with software. And a good example of that is just recently Tesla activated the driver monitoring systems in their vehicles. So there's been a camera in the vehicle from the time the vehicles were purchased, but it wasn't activated or used. The subsystem that it interfaced with wasn't activated. Tesla knew they would have that functionality down the road. And when their software was ready, they they activated it. So that's just one example. But I think it's indisputable that more and more of the functionality of the vehicles that we drive is provided almost exclusively via software. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing, though, isn't it? You know, that they had some hardware that took up space and weight in the vehicle that they didn't immediately have any use for. But they put it in the vehicle, went through all the sort of, you know, extra work that that is, the extra cost, the homologation, the everything, the testing, put it out into the market and fingers crossed we'll find a use for that in a little while. I think that's a really interesting, you know, going back to the culture thing, it's a really interesting approach from a company, which is not like a traditional OEM, going back to that inverted commas traditional OEM, but just, you know, that's quite a different approach, isn't it? To be able to sort of do that with some, you know, things like cameras and stuff that's not necessarily super cheap components. But yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, their definition, the definition you read out, Connor, in terms of that, you know, software centric electronic device on wheels, you know, it sounds super futuristic and, you know, there's still a box it has to, all of that software and electronics has to kind of sit in. I'm sure all of the body and white engineers and the interior guys and everything like that will be sort of, you know, shouting at the podcast at the moment, sort of how important their bits are. But yeah, there is, just like Doug said, there's that inevitable trend, isn't there? It's that increase of it. It's, you know, the software defines a lot of the functionality that customers care about, whether that's talk maps in an engine, you know, and obviously it's not just, it's not just the software. It's the whole system that we kind of keep coming back to. It's like that double E system or even that wider sort of mechanical integration and the electronics and the hardware. And you have to have all of that working together. That's the optimal way you deliver those features. But 
undeniably software is in electronics is, is an increasingly important part of a vehicle. To your point, Danny, it's interesting to see a, a company put content, especially content that, you know, is not as cheap as a, a camera into a vehicle with anticipation that it might be used down the road, right? And not with it being activated and in use from the, the first day you, that vehicle is purchased. And as you said, traditional OEMs are very averse to putting any giveaway content in a vehicle for obvious reasons, right? You're giving away costs that you're not recurring. And the only time they do that is because economies of scale justify it. You know, the yeah. investment to produce the greater volume of parts offsets the incremental cost and they do it and it eases their complexity and they give away that content. At the end of the day, that decision around that camera from Tesla, they had to make a same decision. And in their minds, they have a business case that justified giving away that content knowing that they would get return on that investment down the road when they activated the feature and initiated it via software. So my expectation is is that you're going to see a package, if they haven't announced it already, maybe they have, but some sort of driver awareness, driver monitoring system that you can subscribe to or, or turn on via lump sum fee. And it's a different feature you're paying for than it was enabled by software maybe years after you bought that vehicle. So that's a perfect example of the giveaway strategy may be changing as a result of software. So if you think about a complex sensor like a camera and putting one of those for free in a vehicle, it seems like an exorbitant amount of money. But if you have the scale to do it across the board and you only have one design that's going into these vehicles, as a result, maybe that enables that type of approach as opposed to having 15 variants in your design with various combinations of sensors within the vehicle. So you know, there's a lot of trade-offs associated with your design process, your supplier's cost back to you, as well as your end vehicle manufacturing assembly process that can be impacted by software. I think one thing that's important to note, though, is we call them software-defined vehicles because so much of the content is provided via software. An underlying aspect of that, though, is inherently you have to have over-the-air capabilities, right? Because the more software you're going to have, the more bugs you're going to have. It just goes without saying. And you're going to have to patch and fix those bugs. The more data you have flying around these vehicles, the more data coming in and out of the vehicles and traveling around within the vehicles, especially when it comes to the availability to make purchases, you're providing financial transactions over these networks now in some cases, you know, there's a lot of privacy issues. So security is clearly a number one concern for the OEMs. And they're constantly going to be monitoring these vehicles and providing updates and security patches as a result. So it's never ending, right? These are living entities. And, and as a result, I, I kind of refer to a software-defined vehicle as fine wine, if you would, in the sense that it's not like the vehicle of old where the finest day it ever saw was the day you drove it off the lot. And from that point on, it, it slowly erodes over its life cycle. You know, you have the ability now with over-the-air updates to actually improve vehicle performance, improve vehicle quality as that car ages on the road. That's something that you never would have thought of, at least what I never would have thought of in any other vehicle that I have bought previously. So, you know, it, it's very exciting to see that. But then that's just ongoing customer satisfaction and quality of the product. That has nothing to do with additional revenue or business models. So with that same over-the-air update capability, you can, as we said, turn on these features or turn off these features, allow people to 
buy a feature or functionality for a set period of time. If I want to take my family camping and my EV pickup truck for the weekend and I want a three inch suspension lift and I want to have different torque capabilities so I can go uh, climbing on rugged terrain, you know, I can pay for that functionality via software updates for a week or a month. Yeah, that's right. And that's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, it really does open up quite different sort of business models and a lot more of the sort of stuff we see in terms of subscription models and you know, software as a service type things that we, we sort of see on kind of internet services and, and those sorts of things being rolled out into vehicles. Exactly like you say, you know, you just buy a feature for a couple of weeks and it's time banned and switches off after that time. I think that's, that's really interesting. And you're even seeing uh, some of these packages can be bought for an annual package. You can buy it monthly. You can pay one lump sum and have a, a feature resonant in your vehicle from that point forward. Then the OEMs are going to do what the OEMs do, right? They're going to, well, if you buy it when you buy the vehicle, you get a discount. If you decide to buy it six months later, it's going to cost a bit more. If you do it on a subscription, it's going to be a little bit more. And they're going to placate to whatever those desired purchase models are. The great thing is, is the consumer has the flexibility then to do whatever they want. They can purchase it for a month. They can purchase it for a year or the entire life of the vehicle, you know, and then even if you go to sell that vehicle, you can turn features on or off, and the person who buys that vehicle can then modify it as well, which you can never do in the past if you bought a used car. So it's just a very different dynamic to the decision-making process, in my opinion. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? In that sort of like resale, you can imagine, you know, sort of selling exactly the same vehicle, you know, being worth different amounts because, you know, it's got nine months left on its subscription in the same way you have an MOT or whatever that's got, a, you know, you get a little bit more money for that. Oh, well, I've still got six months left of the all-terrain feature on this vehicle. So that's worth more than the equivalent. Do you think this transition, earlier we were talking about, in particular with EVs, how it kind of frees up the design space or the packaging, if you will, for the designer. Can software do something similar in terms of how a vehicle is designed and packaged and then, of course, sold? So I wonder if it, if what, what it does is it drives you down more of the sort of modular approach to the hardware where it's slightly more interchangeable. And, yeah, you're able to, you're able to get software from multiple sources i mean could you imagine even having like an app store for the vehicle where it's like an equivalent to apple where they kind of validate every bit of functionality that's kind of described and actually you're kind of in inverted commas open sourcing your sort of vehicle functionality where enthusiasts can kind of write some code for a particular feature which they know about because the, the hardware is kind of there but your engineers happen to not have thought of it and so maybe you end up with some of these kind of like secondary type markets as well could be almost a resurgence. Well, maybe not a resurgence, but it's a new take on the aftermarket vehicle customization. Whereas instead of buying, you know, a spoiler or whatever, whatever you want to get, it would be like a software package. Yeah, yeah. Back to your fundamental question, the base question about the software impact on the physical structure of the vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. It does have that capability. If you think about it, most vehicles today are a series of thousands of discrete wires connecting modules and switches and sensors to each other. What the software can allow you to do, again, together with a combination of hardware and electronics, but you know, you can eliminate large chunks of that wiring and 
send the same signal and communications back and forth between those modules over multiplexed networks, thereby eliminating huge pieces of the wiring. And then, you know, you can distribute your functionality then. You can move these modules around to the loads that they're located by and then do your hard wiring from those distributed modules to the respective devices or loads. And that will eliminate a large amount of weight and mass associated with the traditional wire harness. Problem is, is the vehicle architectures and the vehicle development cycle, you know, at best case is a, a two to three year activity. It's not done in six or 12 months. And we all know that consumer electronics and features and functionality associated with it move at a much faster pace. So I envision a future where you're going to have these distributed architectures with potentially very little core wiring from module to module that takes care of base functionality on a vehicle, but a lot of additional feature content, that next generation of high-tech functionality and devices that will be integrated into a vehicle will be connected through these dedicated wiring systems until the next generation where they're further integrated into the overall vehicle architecture. And that'll just be a constant evolution of incorporating the latest features with a more traditional commodity, cost-effective type of wiring solution, as opposed to a, a full vehicle solution. And I think there'll be a balance between those two going forward. But again, there's always the price point trade-off. At what point is that multiplexed system that's predicated on software, hardware, and electronics cheaper than a simple copper circuit to connect those devices with the same level of functionality? That's the trade-off that the OEMs are always trying to make. So when you see these architectures that are software-enabled, it's not just a cost assessment that they're doing. It's an assessment about the whole vehicle structure, the design complexity, and even down to the impact of the manufacturability of the vehicle because that's such a, a huge aspect of concern for any OEM. I mean, even as Tesla, right? Their relative complexity for an OEM in comparison to a GM or Ford is, is minuscule, Yet their biggest single challenge in launching was building vehicles. <laughs> it's kind of hard to build vehicles. It's not something you should take for granted. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that manufacturing aspect is so huge and just hitting the, the scale you need to make a lot of these things economical for the company. Yeah, we, we tend to talk about technology and capabilities, which is great. But a lot of the capabilities we're talking about have technically existed for 15, 20, 25 years in some cases, but they weren't cost justifiable. There was never a motivating need that would cause you to spend as much as it would cost to eliminate or simplify your architectures. But now we're getting to a point where there is a compelling reason to reevaluate and recreate your architecture as a result of the business changes that are going on. Like I've come back to multiple times. At the end of the day, it's not the technology that's driving these changes. It's the technology that enables these changes, but it's the business models that are driving these changes. I was going to say one thing that we haven't really touched on as well is, is kind of things like legislative drivers as well. So particularly, I guess, for things like I'm thinking about autonomy and, and electrification, you know, they're going to be some of the big, big drivers for vehicle development and you know probably WE systems and what redundancy is kind of required legislatively or what level of yeah functionality you have to be able to provide or whatever it happens to be you know where and, and when you can 
incrementally turn on various levels of, of autonomous functionality. I mean, I think governments just have a massive part to play, obviously, in driving all of these things forward because they, you know, OEMs respond to and car companies respond to those big kind of drivers and they're obviously big global companies. So what happens in China is just as important as what happens in the US or Europe or, or what have you. And changes in one place have a big impact on vehicle design. You know, and that's historically always been the case, whether it's ensuring kind of crash safety zones. So you end up with bonnets that kind of all look pretty similar because of certain constraints in areas where you can't package things and, and stuff like that. It's just quite unknown, I think, particularly around the autonomous. It feels more so than electrification because it feels like there's a, a gradual trend and just an increasing desire to reduce emissions, reduce CO2, all of those sorts of things. And the pace of that, I guess, is still a little unknown. But the autonomy feels like is the one where it's the legislation side of it is just a lot less developed and there's a lot more risk, I guess, for companies in terms of how that is going to develop, which will obviously drive business models and technology development too. That's a good point, Dan, the legislation piece, because it's uh, there are so many unknowns. And quite honestly, it's like some of the governments, particularly in North America, <laughs> seem to be uh, of the mindset that it's not at a scale that it needs to be addressed by the federal government at this point. So instead of getting ahead of the curve and defining regulations and guidelines that drive the industry, they're waiting for industry to figure it out amongst themselves. And historically in the automotive industry, that's a slow road to progress. Rather than being forced yeah, I mean, I don't want to oversimplify, but I would say that German OEMs, when it comes to areas of standardization that help speed development or commonize critical requirements that impact a, a common supply base, they tend to do a better job of getting aligned and driving those requirements as opposed to in North America, where it seems like they tend to focus on their you know more immediate needs and what's best for their current business as opposed to broader industry standardization or commonality. And I mean, it makes sense, right? Everyone's got to focus on yeah. their, their current profits and what's driving their development priorities and standardization with industry players is rarely at the top of the list. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So maybe just to kind of wrap up the conversation for today, I wanted to ask about just the pace of development overall and how it's going to change over the next 10 years. I think a common trend so far has just been that it's accelerating, but is there a limit? You know, how fast can they really get between developing the product and actually getting it out to market? Well, I mean, there's always going to be a limit, right? I mean, time is a, a limited commodity, so we can't keep reducing to the point of it takes no time, but there's always going to be marginal gains at a minimum, right? You'll always be able to, to improve some percentage but I don't think we're there yet. I think we're still in uh, the phase of rapid improvements. Yeah. We have customer testimonials that through process reinvention and, and tool implementation and automation, they've been able to reduce certain development phases by as much as 50%. And these aren't hours or days. I mean, these are weeks long activities that they're addressing. So there's significant opportunity out there. And I believe we've really just started to tap into some of the areas where we can reduce development life cycles. And I think there's certain areas that people haven't focused on as much because it's been perceived as not having as much of an impact to the total 
life cycle improvement, but all of those areas will get flushed out in due time. And uh, I think that, you know, even when I started in the industry, people talked about four to five year vehicle life cycles. Now you're looking at two to three year life cycles. So I'd like to think by the time I'm retired and, you know, 10 years or so that we're talking about 18 month life cycles on vehicle development. Yeah, I think exactly like you say, Doug, it, it feels like we're just, I mean, we haven't even touched on the whole sort of impact of things like AI and, you know, other sort of real sort of machine learning and assistance in, in those kind of things and how that might impact development. So maybe one for another, another podcast. But yeah, I think even just automation, I think there's so much of industry which where there's still huge gains to be made in terms of automating processes and, you know, really being able to use people where they can add the most value, whether that's in being creative or innovative or, or what have you, and to take some of the things which, you know, there's still so much manual development that happens in engineering, whether it's on a documentation side or whether it's in the actual design or the testing or whatever it is, there's lots of manual steps in those processes. And like you're saying with those customer examples from our experience, you know, we know that that is true not just in those customers but across others as well and so you know i think there's still a huge way we can kind of go in terms of accelerating that stuff and whether they use that to reduce the time for vehicle programs to get to market or whether they use it to add more features and functionality into a vehicle i guess different oems will have different answers to that i suppose this seems to tie into the whole idea of the software defined vehicle again because we talked about building content into a vehicle that you might not enable until sometime down the road. How does that play into this change in development cycles? Yeah, I guess it's interesting, isn't it? Because you're kind of decoupling sort of feature completion from start of production. It's like you can have like a big backlog of features you know you're going to implement, but you know you can't get those implemented in the next two years or three years of the sort of vehicle program. So, you know, maybe you've got six years worth of features you can do and they're all software and half of them are going to come out afterwards, but, you know, they're going to get released at whatever time. I think that decoupling of hardware and software, yeah, is is going to have quite a radical shift on that and and will change customers' expectations as well. Because, again, if if your car can't have all these updates, it's like, you know, that's going to be looked on negatively, I would expect, by customers as well. You know, the only... Other thing I'd throw in there is, you know, the software-defined vehicle, we talk about it as far as the software that's resident on the vehicle, running on the vehicle and defining its functions. But, you know, another spin on it is the software that helps define the vehicle, right? Helps define, design, develop that vehicle. I think that the software impact of development tools or the impact of software-driven development tools is far more substantial and going to have a much broader impact on the design process and mm-hmm. resultant timing associated with it for these OEMs. And, you know, we talked about cultural change in the past. That cultural change, you know, it drives business decisions, but it it drives the way you develop your product as well. That's going to be a, a very big challenge for some of the legacy OEMs. It's not their they don't lack technology, they don't lack capability, and clearly they're way ahead of the new entrants in regards to quality assembly at scale, especially on a global footprint. 
for most of them. But what they don't have is that mindset that some of the startups do and, you know, the willingness to tear up a process that's existed and served them for decades and where, yeah. where they have committed to doing that because, you know, they are committed to changing and improving themselves. They're not like sticking their head in the sand. It just takes time where they are committed to doing that. They acknowledge it's going to take more time than, than these startups for obvious reasons, but it doesn't mean that they don't realize they need to do it and are moving down that path. But my point is when I hear software defined vehicle, I look at it from not just the feature that the consumer buys, but the ability to develop that vehicle. Yeah, it involves the underlying process as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I see. That's a really good good observation, Doug, in terms of that software-defined vehicle, because, you know, it is these kind of tools and these pieces of software that have really enabled so many of these kind of advances, aren't they, in terms of being able to do the simulations or the analysis or the design work or automating so much of that stuff. And I think, you know, yeah, there is that aspect that, the tools have to develop, the tools have to have to advance and have to be continually progressing in order for OEMs and, and for organizations to make these technologies and to develop the technologies as quickly as they can to make this software-defined vehicle a real reality. Yeah, and, you know, again, that goes back to um, where we started this whole discussion was around the workforce, the skill sets, mm-hmm. and the people. Quite honestly, you know, you mentioned automation. There's tools that are automated to do simple tasks, you know, that you wouldn't necessarily want your skilled workforce spending their time on if they don't need to do it because it's not adding value or creativity to the work product. And, you know, if you're running those engineering teams, you want your engineers to be maximizing creativity and optimizing aspects of the design, not pushing buttons on the computer, entering data or making sure it's accurate. So I think that that whole development process is becoming more software driven, not just the vehicle product itself. Yeah. And I think that in itself is even changing the nature of skills, isn't it? Cause you know, even think about, you know, obviously we've been involved in sort of electrical and, and harness industry and that's, you know, being able to shift from engineers needing to be great at drawing out massive big harnesses to being able to manage data and, you know, just design rule sets or what have you to support some of this, these automated tasks. And that changes the nature of the sort of skill sets and the way as an engineer, you have to think about your role and what you're kind of doing and, and how you're developing stuff. And that's just one simple example, but you can see that replicated across various other domains as well, where the nature of what you're doing as an engineer is changing slightly. And it's much more about you interacting with the software tools and using them to really best augment your abilities. Awesome. Thank you guys very much for the discussion today. Thanks, Connor. That's fun. The software defined vehicle is another important trend in today's automotive industry. Not separate from, but intertwined with the well-known megatrends of electrification, autonomy, connectivity, and shared mobility. Technologies underlying these trends all rely on sophisticated software applications to enable both basic and advanced vehicle features and functionality. For example, electric vehicles need battery management software to maximize range and optimize the charging and discharging of the battery. And autonomous vehicles, of course, will require cutting-edge AI software to detect objects and plan vehicle actions. Even cars that you can go buy today contain over 100 million lines of software code, managing everything from the powertrain to your heated seats and smartphone connectivity. Automotive companies are responding at all levels, from increasing their in-house software development capabilities 
to developing closer partnerships with suppliers and, critically, integrating software development more tightly with other engineering domains, while also decoupling its implementation from the hardware. How are they doing it? Digitalization. Digitalization across the enterprise is allowing these companies to manage complexity, accelerate development, and monetize innovative technologies and products. We'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about our electrical system solutions, please visit siemens.com slash eesystems. Once again, the URL is siemens.com slash eesystems. Or you can check out our blogs. Links for both are in the show notes. So once again, and for the last time, this has been the Automotive EE Systems Revolution. I'm your host, Connor Pike. Thanks again for listening.